When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. He suffered, really suffered, and he was a very battered but gallant, marvelous man. And then after all that, all those things, any of which would and could have killed him, he actually died by accident. Welcome to Grief Encounters with me, Sasha Hamrog. And I'm Venetia Quick. We're a weekly podcast that looks at an issue that affects us all and yet remains so difficult to talk about. We'll be chatting to guests from all walks of life on the subject of death and all that comes with it. Our main aim is to motivate, comfort and create a modern space for people to share their own experiences. Could you think of someone that could benefit in listening? Tell them about Grief Encounters out every single Tuesday. On this week's episode of Grief Encounters, I spoke with Louisa Young. Um, Louisa Young is an incredibly beautiful person, which you will soon hear. Um, she spoke to us about her relationship with Robert Lockhart. Robert was an extremely talented composer and someone that she had a relationship with on and off for many, many years. They actually met as teenagers, so it was a lifelong relationship. And she lost Robert, and she talks to us about losing him and the grief that followed and the life that followed after that. We also spoke a lot about alcoholism and living with someone who suffers with addiction. Her compassion and love for Robert, as well as her kind of beautiful turn of phrase and how she's able to to talk about him and uh, who he really was and the challenges that came with loving someone who suffers with addiction is really, really interesting and, and also really eye-opening, I think, especially for anyone who maybe has also been in that place. Venetia couldn't be with us this week, but she'll be back with us next week. Um, So here is our chat with Louisa. Loving an addict can be incredibly difficult for anyone to go through. It's a relationship that's often rampant with deceit and disappointment, and sadly, more often than not, the addiction comes out on top. This week's guest is the award-winning UK writer Louisa Young, whose book You Left Early accounts her relationship with Robert Lockhart, an extremely talented and prolific composer from Wigan who battled alcohol addiction throughout long periods of his life. Louisa, thank you so much for joining us. And I suppose on this podcast on Grief Encounters, I think one of the most moving things that kind of comes up is just learning about the person that we lost and getting the chance to talk about them and hearing it from someone who loved them. So, you know, can you start by telling us who Robert was and what the relationship between the two of you was like. Oh, Lord. Robert and I met when we were 17 years old and he was one day younger than me. Wow. And he was two years ahead of me at school. 
and you know how it is when somebody's older than you at school. I mean, we weren't at school together, but mm. you know, they're like, how, "How come this person who's younger than me is academically ahead of me?" Yeah. And he came from the north of England, from Wigan in Lancashire, and I was a London girl. He was a phenomenally talented musician. He's one of those guys, like it's born in them. Mm. And, you know, then as well, they have to work incredibly hard to perfect it. He was old school classical music. He was a brilliant pianist. You know, an unexpected thing, arguably, for a you know, lad from a northern industrial town. But his father was very musical, a very talented piano player as well. And, you know, I was a posh bird from London and I just adored him. I'd never mm. met a northerner before. <laughs> and he was just incredibly kind of charismatic and mysterious and funny and kind of took no prisoners. And I was quite swept away by him. But, you know, we met when we were 17. We first had a kind of romantic interlude. I slept together when we were about 22, 23. And then we were just friends and sometimes we were lovers and sometimes we weren't. And, you know, I had a baby and he got married and that. Mm. we didn't actually get together as a couple until we were in our early 40s when he'd already been alcoholic for quite a long time and he realised, you know, finally took it on board after years of everybody telling him mm. um, that he had to do something about it. And he... You know, felt that uh, you know it became possible because I understood that he meant it, mm. and I believed that he was capable of of taking it seriously and doing something about it. And on that understanding, it was like, yeah, okay, in that case, I will be your girl. That is such a beautiful romantic story. Can you take us back to when you said when you guys first got together and when he was young? I mean, was that a time that you kind of saw early signs that maybe he had a problem in that area, or was it something that just developed over the years? <laughs> When you're young, you don't know anything. Yeah. Very <laughs> good. Valid point. Rubbish, <laughs> you know? And you believe all the rubbish. And mm. I just found him incredibly romantic. You know, he'd sit down and play beautiful Chopin on the piano. And I'd be like, ah. Oh! Mm. And he swore like a trooper. And, you know, he was just like a great big bundle of contradictions. Now, if I was my mother looking at him, I would think, oh, that boy's trouble. Yeah. But, you know, when you're 17, that boy who yeah. looks like trouble is just like, Everything, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, we all drank too much. We were young, we were still mm. immortal. Everybody was doing ridiculous things. And I suppose probably it wasn't until, you know, you kind of hit your 30s and then you think, you know what, that stuff is very funny and amazing when we were 20, but it's like getting a bit, uh, mm. now, like, stop it, you're misjudging things. And then, you know, by your late 30s, it's like, stop it, what do you, why are you still smoking? You know, smoking kills you. Why are you still doing these things? You, you know, you're becoming boring. You're misjudging things. You're hurting people's feelings, which is something you would never do because you have the kind, kind heart. You know, some alcoholics are just bastards anyway. Mm. But a lot of alcoholics are actually very nice people who, when the drink gets its hooks into them, it just brings out all this nasty behaviour, which is not what they would naturally be. Mm. And of course, trying, you know, when someone's got a condition which makes them behave so unpleasantly, you know they're actually a good person and actually you love them. And then it gets very confusing. And that must be very hard when you're the person. So, you know, when you're when you're sitting there and somebody sort of transitions from being the person you love and the person you, you know and the person you choose, and then all of a sudden, you know, you know, there's somebody entirely different... Mm. And you're still kind of standing by them, and you're st- you have to sit it out, and you have to and you have to be there the next morning, and you that's not easy. Well, 
It's not easy. For me, it was a bit different because, you know, I wasn't married to him. He mm. wasn't the father of my child. And I'd always resisted being his girlfriend because he was too drunk, too wild, always going off with other people. And I was just thinking, you know, I've seen him be such a kind of dangerous, volatile boyfriend to everybody else. Mm. And although I adore him, I would not want to be his girlfriend, though actually I really do want to be his girlfriend. Mm. So when we did get together, it was on the understanding that he was going to deal with his problems. And therefore, that made it easy to help him because... You know, we had the same project on the go. Of course, then what I didn't know was that it's not just like, okay, I'm going to be a sober person now. It's going to be hard work, but that's what we're doing. Of course, it swings and roundabouts and it's back to square one and you think it's going to be a three-point turn. It turns out to be a 349-point turn. And yeah, a lot of the time, you know, he would turn up drunk saying he was sober and I'd be thinking, I don't think you're sober. Mm. But you say you're sober, and I don't want to tell you you're lying, but I can't make head or tail of this, and I don't know what to do about it. And then I say, no, you're drunk. And then he says, well, I would be drunk because, you know, you're telling me I'm drunk when I'm not drunk, and, you know, I'm going to go down the pub. Anyone would be drunk having to put up with you. And, you know, all that Mm. kind of stuff where it deflects back on the person who's just sitting there going, I just want you to be like your nice self, your sweet, you know. We had this thing about twins, his sweet twin and his evil twin. Mm. And one time, you know, his sweet twin was sort of saying to me, "What, what's the evil twin like then? And I'm saying, well, you ought to know, you know, you, you're always there <laughs> you mean, when he's yeah. there. And it, but it's real Jekyll and Hyde. And, mm. But he wasn't, I suppose and, he wasn't really there when he was there in the sense that it's very hard to remember when you... Well, it's, you know, it's the yeah. same body. Yeah. You know, it's the same voice. Yeah. It's the same... You, you know, and it, and it, is, all, it is all part of you. I mean, you, because the thing about an addict is... You know, it may not be their fault that they're an addict, and I don't believe it is their fault. You know, they didn't ask for the particular setup of genes and experience and psychology and everything that adds up to a person being addictive. But it is their responsibility. They're the person who has to make the choices and make the decisions which will keep them safe from that weakness, that condition that they have. Mm. So, yeah, it's incredibly hard work. And as the partner or the person who loves an addict, you know, initially, you feel, well, if you say anything about it, you're somehow betraying them mm. because, you know, you don't want to go around saying my husband's an addict, my, my son's an addict. You know, your son has to go to work every day or whatever yeah. it might be. But if you don't say anything, then you're colluding. So are you betraying or colluding? And you sit on this sort of knife edge, not knowing what to do because nobody's told you what to do because this is not something people talk about enough. Mm. And that was one reason why I wrote the book. I wrote it because the you know, the only really interesting good book I'd read about addiction was um, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, which is, you know, from the 1830s, which is about Anne Bronte. And, it, you know, the reason that the tenant had come to stay at Wildfell Hall was because she was escaping a, a very, very drunk husband, the father mm. of her child, and she was trying to protect her child. You know, this in early Victorian times. Mm. And you think there must be more out there about how you can love an addict and actually survive their condition. And it's very complex. And there is loads of help out there, loads of support. Mm. But it's quite difficult to get hold of it if you haven't been directed there. And it can be hard to speak to you, you know, like just because there's a resource there doesn't mean that it's written in such a way or it's delivered in such a way that is actually speaking to people in a way that they understand or a way that relates to them. You know, I, I found with grief and after I lost my parents, like there was tons of stuff about bereavement, but 
it didn't make any sense to me because it, it just wasn't speaking to me in the way that that, that that I was experiencing it. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, the other thing about grief, you know, I've lost my parents, I've lost Robert, I've lost mm. friends, that quite a lot of time people really, really want to comfort you and, like, get you through it. And it's a very simple fact that that's not how it works. No. And, you know, I'm very grateful to everybody who wanted to comfort me, but I was not comfortable literally mm. it was <laughs> nobody could be able to have comforted me because i was in my grief and that takes the passage it takes and the only there was a lovely image though that a friend of mine gave me which is that you know when the worst happens it's like you're thrown into a river and you have no idea and it is a turbulent tumbling fast eddying river you don't know where you are you're up you're down you can't mm. breathe you can breathe moments of calm and then you're back in it again and you think shit this is this is it and then in the course of that sort of struggling and difficult horrible time you realize that the river has another side there's a second bank over there mm. and there are people on that bank who are looking at you and maybe holding out their hand and you can reach towards them and they can talk to you and they kind of help pull you out and wrap a towel around you and say here's a cup of tea and those are the people who have been in it themselves Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you're looking for a safe haven to express how you feel, share articles, photos, and memories of your loved ones, join the Grief Encounters Facebook group, a place for support, compassion, and empathy for those grieving. That is such a beautiful way of, of putting Isn't it. it? <laughs> and the people on the first bank, you look back at them and you say, I love you, you're great, you are of course fully rounded human people, but you have not been through this yet and you don't know. Yeah. But if and when it happens to you, as it will, I'll be on the I will other be side. here on this side and I will be not saying, pull your socks up or, mm. you know, please stop being so sad because it's upsetting me or all the completely understandable things that people say. Over on the other side, we do know what it's like. And there's such an empathy and a compassion there. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk a little bit about when you lost Robert and what that looked like for you, because 
It's different for everyone for sure, but the reason that this podcast exists is because there are certain things that, you know, by hearing about everyone's experiences and different experiences, I suppose that's how we learn and we grow. And I think yeah. your honesty in it, um, what was it like, especially in those early days after after you lost him? Well, it was a very odd thing because Robert had had all sorts of physical conditions as a result of his alcoholism. He'd uh, he'd managed to break his foot off, so he had kind of, you know, damaged walking. He also had peripheral neuropathy. He'd had Vernica Korsakoff syndrome. He'd, so he, and he'd had throat cancer. So he wasn't able, you know, he'd been really, really ill. However, he had survived the cancer. He was 15 months out of that, although he couldn't eat or talk properly. He'd survived the alcoholism and he'd been sober for five years. He'd suffered, really suffered, and he was a very battered but gallant, marvellous man. And then after all that, all those things, any of which would and could have killed him, he actually died by accident. Mm. And the accident was not unrelated. I mean, I won't go into it. Everyone is very welcome to read the book, but Mm. I won't recount what Mm. actually happened. But it meant that after a lot of long illness, which could have killed him, he actually died very suddenly, totally unexpectedly. Mm. He'd been to an AA meeting that morning and then I got a call from the hospital in the afternoon. And so it was just the sheer wrongness that he should go through all that, struggle through it, suffer so much, be so brave, work so hard, redeem so much. You know, he'd rebuilt all his relationships with his son, with his ex-wife, with all, you know, friends. and, And it was, you know, we were meant to have some kind of very battered but functional happy ending you know we were going to have a good act three together where we could deal with all the shit but you know we'd be all right and then suddenly it's like no you're not even getting that and I just felt it was so unfair on him because he did so well he did so much and he was so I mean gallant was the word that kept coming back to me Mm. gallant and hardworking and loving and sweet and so grateful you know when addicts sort themselves out and are able to get some recovery, the thing that shines off them is this gratitude. Oh, which is just the most beautiful... It's so so Mm. lovely. You can warm your hands at it. You know, it's just the... You know, that we still love them and that everybody's still around and that people are kind of willing to forgive them. And so that that was all just, like, whipped away. And we were like, what? No, hang on, hang on. No, rewind. That's not how this thing is meant to end. You know, we were going to get married. What do you mean? And what so a shock a... for you to... Oh, Christ. To have survived yeah. all those things with him and to gone, have gone through all of that and then to get this call. I mean, like, your your mind and your body must have Well, yeah, just... and, you know, and that wasn't the end of it. They didn't ring to say he was dead. They mm. rang to say he's in intensive care. Okay. And so you go up there and then they put you in a little room and make you wait. And you think, why can't I just go to where he is? What's this about? Mm. And so then you realize what this is about is that he's, um, you know, he has some brain damage and then sort of bit by bit, what do you mean brain damage? What, how, what, what? And then it turns out that basically he's brain dead and it's now up to you to tell them to pull the plug. And so, (laughs) you know, even dead, this man is still being like complicated and and borderline. (laughs) Oh, Jesus Christ. So I, I, what I actually did then was as we were engaged and we'd been engaged for a while, like, two, three years and we were going to get married when he was feeling better and it was never quite you know he was never quite feeling better enough and so I thought fuck it I'm going to marry him anyway excuse my language you can cut that if you like no no go ahead drat I'm going to marry him the more F words the better (laughs) and I asked the doctors I said am I allowed and they said well it won't be legal but frankly madam under these circumstances Mm. you can do exactly what you want Mm. 
so I just sort of did and, um, you know, put a ring on him and put a ring on me and uh, then off he went. So it was all, you know, all very heightened, all very uh, kind of romantic and appalling. And to be honest, I have very little memory of the immediate aftermath, just of people rallying around. Mm. You know, my daughter coming to sleep in my bed and of just friends being there and meals being there and people like the house being full, which was just wonderful, you know, and it's like suddenly you pay back for every time you've ever been halfway decent to anyone. They're all standing on your doorstep saying, I've got a casserole Mm. to such a degree that you have to say, please, no more casseroles. Could someone bring a lasagna? You know, (laughs) tell them chicken. Is there anything I can do for you? (laughs) Yes, tell the friends to bring a roast chicken, not another flame casserole. There's a reason that the the bringing of the food thing, because like, I think that nobody talks about this, but the reason you bring food is because the person isn't capable Absolutely, making food. I, I, I could have, yeah, I could have been capable maybe of burning the house down. Yeah, but you know, I'd certainly know, and and you know, and you need to eat. Mm. I remember for a period I was on 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 what my daughter christened the grief diet, which was all I could take was champagne and chocolate marzipan. You know that plain <laughs> chocolate marzipan, and I was just eating that. And she was saying, "There's a lot of lot of protein in marzipan." Mom. Well, so I have to admire one of your five a day, and I was just like, you know, sort of in, in such shock. I have to admire your choices. I, in grief, often resorted to these cigarettes and coffee diets, so I, I am with yeah, you there. Yeah, 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 you know, and there are traditions, and, you mm. know, people would, would sometimes feel that, you know, if your grief is based on someone being an alcoholic, how can you be drinking so much when they die? And you're like, well, you know, he was the alcoholic. I'm actually mm. not an alcoholic, which means that I have the great blessing that I can drink myself silly mm. when in grief without it causing any particular lasting damage. Mm. But human life is full of irony, isn't it? It sure is. And the thing about you guys is you were so ingrained in each other's lives for so long. I mean, being a teenager, someone you've known since you were a teenager, they're in they're just yes. they're just part of you in so many ways. Absolutely, kind of like a brother, you know, mm-hmm. like a you know, these pals that keep your past and you know, you've always been alongside each other and you've you know, I was somebody that he would always pitch up and I'd say, What's the matter is someone chucked you again? And he'd say, Oh, how did you know? <laughs> well, because that's the only reason you yeah. ever turn up around here, you know, sit down, have a cup of tea. Yeah. Can't I have a drink? No, you can't have a cup of tea. You know, and you know, for years you have that you know, because he was a musician and he would always be, you know, his music filled my house. Either he'd be playing or he'd be playing something or thinking or composing or you know, there was mm. the music was always around. And after he left there was this silence. And then a quite surprising thing happened, which was that I started writing songs about him. And there I am, a fully grown woman, and I'd never really written songs before. I mean, I'd know I'd written a couple because he'd set them... I mean, I write the lyrics and the melodies, but he'd done a piano arrangement, which Mm. I found after he was dead on the piano. It's like, oh, I didn't even know you'd done that Mm. for me. But I just started writing more and more, and so then I suddenly realised, well, shit, I'm being a songwriter now. And so I thought, well, what the hell, I'm going to make a record. I'm going to make an album. So I I made an album, which I released last year um, with my daughter's then boyfriend, who's one of those wonderful multi-instrumentalists who, Mm. you know, played the instruments for me. And, you know, I sang and they were my songs. And and that was so unexpected. I mean, you know, grief and loss is known to have an effect on creativity. But I had not thought that I would suddenly turn into a kind of 15th rate kind of Joni Mitchell type (laughs) creature. That has been a great gift. That has been a wonderful gift that has, you know, really brought me a great deal of joy. And I'm so glad you're talking about it because I think sometimes people are a little bit afraid to talk about the good things that come 
from out of the on the other side of loss because it feels disrespectful Ungrateful, sometimes yeah or yeah and, and sometimes it yeah. just seems crass like I wrote a lot throughout my career for different reasons for you know job things but after my mom died after my dad I just I started writing and writing and writing and just found I found something that I didn't have before well when your parents die you get promoted don't you you're yeah. front line now it's true and maybe in taking that maturity on that's yeah set something off in you like you know when the weather goes above a certain temperature suddenly particular flowers start coming out and stuff yeah. and we are animals you know we have very innate natural responses to things and that's the thing it was it also is i suppose and i wanted to ask you about this it's a mortality question right so like we start mm-hmm. to time starts to feel different and oh yeah I mean, how does yeah, yeah. time once feel? A widow, once you're a widow, it's like, holy shit, I better hurry up. <laughs> how does, you what know, is life, do die. what does life look like for you now without, without Robert in it and, and also in terms of mortality and things like that? Well, I miss him every day. I'm incredibly happy not to be living with alcoholism in my everyday life. Mm. Even, you know, alcoholic in recovery, it's still a very hard full-time job, both for the addict and for the people closest to them. Um, uh, everything's much calmer in quite a ridiculous fairy tale manner a couple of years after Robert's death I met a lovely widower whose wife had died very recently and we made friends and he is also a novelist his name's Michelle Faber and we kind of you know were pals for about a year and then it kind of blossomed as they Mm -hmm. say so now I have a lovely boyfriend who is calm and wise and more understanding than anybody ever was you know like Robert hyper talented blue eyed and doesn't touch a drop (laughs) and obsessed with music but unlike Robert um in you know in in the kind of the calmness and the having been touched by you know his own fire through the loss of his own very beloved wife Mm. um you know, we've both been there, and so we can be very balanced and nice. And so there's none of this Rebecca syndrome. You know, he knows that I wouldn't have left Robert. I know that he wouldn't have left yeah. his wife. But here we are. Is there a beautiful safety? A safe, a yeah. feeling of safeness that was was difficult to have. Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah you can just sort of relax a bit, mm. and and so that's really terribly nice. Mm. It's terribly nice. I think that's wonderful. I'm very glad to to hear. And that. it's quite a cliche, isn't it? But you know. Uh, I feel very fortunate in that. But you know, I think we've ha- we've had a lot of people who have lost their partners on the podcast, and one of the things that they're afraid to think about or talk about is that moving forward, meeting someone else. They're afraid to to bring it up. They're afraid to say it to someone else. And you know, I think it can be a difficult thing to imagine that it'll ever happen. Well, this is a good thing about going out with writers, you know, because you know what's happened to them because they've written about it. That's very true. <laughs> And so for a while, Michel was writing um, and publishing a a series of poems about his wife's illness and death. And I was writing the memoir and he was, you know, very civilly saying, you know, would would you like us to kind of put things on hold for a bit while you deal with all that? Because, you know, you've got a lot to deal with. (laughs) And but because we were both working on things which came from a similar place, although they're very different works. And um, because we both completely understood as somebody who'd lost their true love and be as a writer. So that meant it was much simpler. If I'd had to be explaining to a possible potential new boyfriend the whole thing about A, Robert, and B, writing about Robert, 
that would have been an awful lot to put on somebody's head if they weren't already halfway there. It's a very evolved thing to be able to be with someone and know that, as you put it, their true love or the person that they love so dearly. Yeah, it's a different thing though, isn't it? I think it's about maturity. Mm. Because when you come together at our age, you know, we're quite old. I mean, not massively old, but we're quite old. Um, You know, I'm not looking for someone to father my children. I'm Mm. not looking for someone to, you know, buy a house with and make a family with and spend 50 years of my life with. And that kind of takes the whole pressure off. Mm. I'm just looking for somebody that I want to be with just because as human beings, we want to be together as a man and a woman. Mm. And it makes it much, much, much simpler. There's all this other stuff you don't even have to take into consideration. And that means that you can think, yeah, okay, all that was then. And you can make us a little leap of practicality and also to think, well, nobody really wants people to hang around being miserable because they're widowed. I mean, it's really mean. You loved once and therefore you're not allowed to love ever again, even though it's really terribly different and you're mm. in a different place and a different time, different period of your life. Mm. If anything, it's the time where you need to just be kind to yourself and allow yourself anything good that comes your way. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, it certainly doesn't make either of us love our dead beloved any less. Mm. I mean, I, I think of myself as having two boyfriends, you know, my living one and my dead one. <laughs> And I still think of it, you know, Robert's been dead seven years now, but he's still like sitting beside me, laughing at me talking on the phone (laughs) about him (laughs) from a beautiful garden in Yorkshire to you in your studio in, where are you, in Dublin? Dublin. I wish I was in a beautiful garden in Yorkshire. That sounds amazing. Oh God, I tell you, it's absolutely lovely up here. Yeah, I'm in Ted Hughes's house, Lumbank, teaching a, a course in memoir. So everybody here has been talking about, you know, their lives and their losses and their traumas, because of course... That's mostly what makes you want to write memoirs is, you know, trying to make sense of the things that happen to us. And grief is clearly a big part of it. Thank you so much for your time today. It was absolutely wonderful talking to you. And thanks it's for telling us your pleasure, story. It's been a real pleasure, Sasha. Thank you. Bye. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 